Let's now turn for our first scripture reading to 2 Corinthians, and uh, we'll begin reading in uh, chapter 5, chapter 5, uh, verse 18, the passage from which I just quoted. We'll read some more from these verses and continue down through verse 13 of the next chapter. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. And then turning over to Ephesians chapter 6, we'll read uh, from verse 18, or rather from verse 17, 17 to the end of the chapter. Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you may that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that me, he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. A 
congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last time we heard uh, this call to prayer. In verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And we're uh, given to see in this passage how uh, the members of the, the family of God are to have an active interest in one another and an active care for them expressed also in prayer for them. And this kind of interest and care for others really uh, is the assumption that underlies Paul's words in verses 21 and 22 where he informs the Ephesians that uh, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, uh, whom Paul has sent to them, will uh, inform them of how he is doing. They will update them on what it's like for him there in uh, Rome, in prison. How much liberty he has, uh, perhaps his physical uh, circumstances, are his needs being met, how is he doing in spirit? Uh, Tychus would inform them, assuming that they are interested in such things. They care about them. And uh, that would assist them in their prayers uh, for him. But Tychicus also will, will comfort uh, their hearts. And part of that comfort may indeed be uh, sharing information about Paul and how he is handling the sufferings that he is enduring for the sake of the gospel. And that can be a very, very important way in which the church is strengthened and built up. As they see others, as they see ministers suffer for the faith, that can help to confirm the gospel message uh, that they preach. In fact, I was given a, a wonderful insight into this uh, through uh, Reverend James Falkerts. We prayed for Reverend Falkerts, who is serving as a OPC missionary in Uganda, and we prayed for him as uh, he and his uh, his wife and his in-laws were traveling, and they were stopped by a gang of, of thugs and uh, beaten severely. He suffered uh, severe injuries from hammer blows, right? They thought perhaps they were going to lose their lives, uh, and they survived, but with pretty severe injuries for Reverend Falkerts, and it took quite some time for him to heal physically and also the the emotional, the, the mental trauma that resulted from such an attack. But he spoke about how that really affected uh, the people to whom he ministered. It's like they saw him with new eyes when he came back and continued to minister. Because their assumption is, oh, the rich right people, now they're getting a taste of what life is like for us here. And he's gone. Once he experiences this kind of violence and brutality, he'll probably leave. But he didn't pick up and leave. He continued to serve there. And he gained a lot of credibility with them for that kind of uh, perseverance and the expression of faith and, and love for them to continue ministering despite the hardships. And in uh, 2 Corinthians, in the first chapter, the apostle uh, Paul uh, speaks in verse 6. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Paul asks for prayers from the Ephesian Christians. And what's uh, remarkable, if you think about it, is that uh, he didn't ask uh, here in this instance for for a release from prison. 
He didn't ask for, for physical comfort or a change in his, his circumstances. But what he asked them to pray for concerns the testimony of the gospel. In verse 19, he pray, he says, and for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. In the book of Acts, in the early chapters, we, we, uh, hear in chapter four of how the infant church began to suffer opposition and persecution for the sake of Christ. And, uh, they, they met together and, uh, and they, they prayed together. And, uh, they prayed that the Lord would give them boldness. Look, Lord, on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And then we re- hear the answer to the prayer. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Suffering did not deter them from faithful testimony. In this instance, it's also significant that this does not seem to be limited and restricted simply to the apostles. There was a gathering of the believers that prayed for boldness. And it was the believers that were emboldened by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God boldly. And so though this uh, uh, sermon this morning does concern particularly the Apostle Paul and ministers of the gospel who are uh, who have an official calling as ambassadors, as official representatives of the king, uh, what we're hearing about the importance and the definition of of boldness also applies to Christians, at least in terms of their testimony and their daily lives and interaction with others. But certainly this boldness, as we, as we see in our text and in other places, is a characteristic of true gospel preaching wherever it is preached, whenever this takes place. And we're here to hear in our text the call to pray for such bold proclamation of the gospel. And our text does teach us quite a bit about uh, gospel ministers as ambassadors of Christ. And uh, it teaches us what they need for that task. At least one thing that is uh, very prominent in terms of what they need. But also we're taught about the role and the responsibility of God's people in this. And we're going to begin by considering then the boldness that every Christian minister needs. And we need to see that this is a boldness for his main work for the preaching and teaching ministry of the gospel. That's the, that's the priority of the gospel ministry. Uh, not, not, uh, personal counseling or visiting or, uh, administrative work, however important those things are in their own place. What Paul singles out in his request is a prayer for utterance. Prayer that he might make known the mystery of Christ as he ought to speak, because that is uh, central uh, to this calling as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not simply praying that uh, he would be uh, given the right words, but also the, the ability to make the truth known, you might say, in a right spirit, in a right manner with a kind of power, with a kind of penetrating effect that can only uh, take place through God's special enabling and help. This boldness is not a personality trait. The fact is that there's a great diversity among ministers. 
If you know a number of ministers, you know how they differ from one another in personality and approach and style. Some might be softer in personality, even, even timid. And that has its assets. That has its appeal. Some might be naturally more, more courageous. Some might be a Timothy who needs to be reminded that God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Let no one despise your youth. Or someone might be like Peter, who was rather courageous and bold, ready to swing his sword, but yet also impetuous and rash. And very often the different strengths of ministers also become their liabilities, the kinds of things that could harm uh, their witness and ministry. But there is a great diversity. But we must see that this boldness that uh, Paul prays for is not simply a matter of personality. It's not simply a matter of uh, the uh, the courage to speak uh, very loud. It's not a matter of volume. Now, as an ambassador of Christ, he ought not to mumble his message. It needs to be heard. And you can imagine in those days before um, uh, sound systems, when uh, ministers were called upon to address uh, large numbers of people, that a good set of lungs and a loud voice was a real asset. And I'm sure there was diversity in terms of those gifts too. Yes, ambassadors must be heard. They must not mumble their message. But it's not simply a matter of loudness either. That also can be a matter of personal style, personality. Nor ought we to think of boldness simply in terms of vehemence, a kind of intensity. Don't you know that that's also a matter of diversity among among uh, people, including ministers? Some people are are uh, just intense in the way they communicate. And that can have both pros and cons, right? Now, certainly ministers should be passionate, but that doesn't mean uh, they uh, speak in a kind of vehement style or that uh, involves a certain uh, sameness to a passionate delivery. They should be passionate about their message. And they should be passionately concerned that people receive it and understand it and believe it. But that's also communicated in different ways. I've heard preachers with a, a kind of calmness and yet whose words speak with such penetrating impact. And there is a seriousness and an urgency to their delivery, though it's far different from other preachers that I might like to listen to. And vehement speech, indeed, it can be in the spirit or it can also be in the flesh, right? If it's simply a natural kind of thing, and vehemence can uh, uh, morph into a kind of harshness, and it ought not to uh, come across either as prideful or, or angry or speaking down to God's people. And so this boldness, again, ought not to be associated with certain styles or personalities. This boldness certainly is the opposite of the fear of man, because the fear of man would would either silence a minister or it would lead him to tone down his message. It would lead him uh, to tailor it in order to avoid pushback, in order to avoid offending people. And there must not be either a kind of defensiveness or a kind of guardedness about telling the good news. In fact, this world, this word boldness also involves the idea of a kind of openness, a kind of plainness, 
that's just the opposite of a kind of a hedging and a kind of uh, excessive qualification or timidness or hesitancy. It's the opposite of, of an apologetic uh, manner or an uncertain proclamation. There indeed ought to be the kind of uh, clarity that results from certainty, certainty as to the truth of one's message and certainty as to what its content really involves. And with that, there ought to be a kind of authority, a gracious authority, but an authority that reflects the authority of the Word of God and the work of God through proclamation. You know, we have a, we have a wonderful example or instance of that in, in the book of Acts in uh, the preaching of Peter, in the face of opposition. He and the disciples had just been arrested. Uh, the the Sanhedrin laid hands on them. They brought them before the council. They were interrogating them. Who do you think they are? You intend to bring this man's blood upon us? They had healed this man. And their preaching had brought opposition. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How's that for clarity? How's that for directness in terms of proclaiming the facts concerning the Lord Jesus? Uh, proclaiming them in a very direct and personal way, not hedging the responsibility and the guilt of those who were involved in his crucifixion. A concern that all might hear this message and the uh, proclamation of the exclusivity of the gospel message, that it's in Jesus Christ and in him alone there is salvation. Nowhere else, by no one else. And then we're told what the response is. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. They derived that spiritual authority and confidence and certainty from their master. They had gone to the school of the Lord Jesus Christ and that enabled them to proclaim him with confidence and clarity and plainness of speech. So boldness, it's not simply a response to an audience, whether they're hostile or whether they're friendly. It belongs to the very nature of gospel proclamation. It pertains to the very message itself. And that leads us to consider the message that is worthy of bold proclamation. In our text, it is called the mystery of the gospel that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And that really is to be understood as the gospel, the good news itself, in the fullness of its accomplishment in Christ, 
concerning things that in previous generations had not yet been made as it is now made known by the prophets and the apostles. We heard of that in uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And he defines that mystery there, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of its power. So it is a message. It is a message of reconciliation. It's a message of peace with God for sinners, for guilty ones who may know the certainty of a full and free forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ for all who believe, no matter who they are, whether they're Jews or whether they're non-Jews, Gentiles, and that, that includes everybody. And it's a message of peace, a message of peace also among people who are otherwise divided by pride, by racism, by hostility. Isn't this a message that our world needs? You know that the only answer to such division, such racism, such suspicion and hostility that characterizes the world we live in more and more is the gospel. It's Christ who reconciles fallen sons and daughters of Adam, created in God's image, fallen from that uprightness, facing the misery and the consequences of that demonstrating the fact that by nature we hate God and our neighbor. And Christ alone brings peace. It's the gospel that levels everyone to the same place. And then it elevates everyone in Christ. It's a glorious uh, message. Paul sums it up also in chapter 3 where he says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that deserves to be proclaimed. It deserves to be proclaimed with a kind of joyful openness. If you get a chance to witness to people, don't do it in such a manner that suggests, well, I know you're going to hate me for this, but I really got to tell you something. No, no. It's good news. And tell it as if it's good news. Tell it with the expectation that people really ought to hear it as such. In my experience, if you approach people that way, even even strangers, with the attitude that you have something really good to share with them, very often the response is uh, respectful and kind. Well, that may be on the surface, but we ought to communicate uh, the truth of the Lord Jesus in a way that uh, shows that we believe that it's a wonderful message. And if people really understood it, they would rejoice. It deserves to be proclaimed with uh, clarity and plainness, boldness. That's really what it amounts to. And how do you pull that off? That's what ministers ask themselves. How do I do it? How do I maintain that kind of boldness from week to week? That's what ministers ask themselves. And sometimes they ask themselves that question on the edge, you might say, as they face self-doubt as they face a weariness of mind, as they face struggles of various kinds, as they face discouragements, as they face a sense of defeat in their uh, personal life, a sense of defeat perhaps in their ministry. And that leads us to consider the great need of God's help for this boldness. You know that Paul had absolutely no self-confidence 
He was among those who have no confidence in the flesh. Now you think that at this stage of Paul's life and ministry, uh, he would have it down. He was a veteran. He was experienced. He had faced enough opposition, and uh, he had proved the Lord's help again and again and again to take it all in stride. Is that what you hear in First uh, Corinthians chapter 4 that we've read together, or Second Corinthians? You know, you might think that of other ministers. Uh, certainly, after all these years, he doesn't get nervous before a sermon. Certainly, it's a rather easy thing for the minister to, to, to preach from, from week to week. He never has to fight with fears or to fight with a sense of inadequacy or inability. You know, we had our, our minister's meeting, and, and thank God that in Edmonton, uh, there is a very close brotherhood of Reformed uh, Presbyterian ministers. And during the school year, we meet once a month, and uh, we, we talk about a topic, and we have wonderful fellowship together in the unity of faith. I think it's important for you to know that. And in our last uh, meeting, one of the senior ministers, we were talking about uh, this subject in some way, not directly uh, in, in view of this text, but one of the senior ministers, he says, you know, sometimes I drive up to the church and I see that parking lot full of, full of cars and I'm just filled with this, almost this fear. It's like, I don't have, I, what do I have to give them? And it's like, everyone is, can relate to that and nodding their heads. But then he said, but then I, I remember that they didn't come to hear me. They've come to hear the word of God. They've come to hear of Christ. They've come to hear a message. And God has called me to speak it. And so with that kind of self-talk, he renews his uh, his will and, and uh, energy and confidence to just trust God and, and uh, give what he's prepared, pray that God will bless it. And sometimes they feel that God has blessed it. Sometimes they feel after they sit in the chair behind the pulpit that it was a disaster. <laughs> But the confidence is in God, his word, his work. And ministers need to know that. And they need to know that God can help us. Pray for me also, Paul says. Every minister must depend entirely on God. And there are a number of reasons for that. I kind of alluded to some of them. Uh, the temptation to fear opposition. Now consider Paul, right? He, he's in prison. Now he might be uh, given quite some liberty to receive visitors. He might not be chained in an actual cell, but yet he's incarcerated with uh, limitations. He doesn't have freedom. And he's there because uh, of, of Christ for preaching the gospel. And he's praying for boldness to do more of that. And you can imagine how he could think, well, I'm here because of bold proclamation and uh, maybe I should just kind of tone it down a little, keep a low profile. And then when I get out, and I can go back to it. No. In the face of opposition, he prays for a boldness to continue to make the message known, realizing that things could get worse for him if that's what he does. He's an ambassador, but he's in chains. Think of that. An ambassador. You know, that's a state official. An ambassador represents uh, the king or the emperor in those times, right? In our day, they represent the president or the premier or the prime minister or whatever. Uh, form of government, but they have an official position and they speak on behalf of the government. And uh, they're often exempt from all, even exempt from arrest. You don't arrest the ambassador. In those days, the ambassador was the message bearer. Whether you like the message or not, 
if you, if you, uh, imprison the ambassador, you can't send him back to the king with your response. But Christ is a king who's not recognized by Rome. And he's of a kingdom that is not recognized by the world. And so they imprison his ambassador. He's in chains. Ministers can fear opposition. They can fear those within the church who, when it comes right down to it, are offended at the gospel. And that's often the case in terms of what's really behind sometimes personal opposition. Ministers may not be able to identify them, but the fact is that, you know, even as the passage ends, not all love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Sometimes that comes out in the form of opposition to the message or the messenger. It's just a reality that is par for the course, you might say. But even those who are in opposition, they need to hear a bold message. They need to hear a loving message. They need to hear direct application to them. There can be a temptation to be affected by those who listen as uh, as critics. Ministers may be made to feel sometimes that they're always being measured by some kind of standard that they're not even aware of. But sometimes they can perceive a kind of critical eye, a critical attitude. Sometimes they can see it in body language. Sometimes they can see it on people's faces. I've taken the occasion before to remind uh, people who sit in church that even though they're so accustomed to see a man up there looking at them, they can forget that he can actually see them. He can see whether they're nodding off sometimes. And they it's, oh, you know, I'm being boring. Or he can see them laughing about something in the pew or whatever it might be. Or he can see a kind of uh, attitude that, uh, again, you got to be careful about how he reads that. He might be mistaken. But so those are some of the kinds of things that ministers have to contend with, right? In their head, sometimes while preaching. A temptation to avoid certain subjects, because especially after some time in a congregation, you know whose toes you might be stepping on. Or when you know the different circumstances of people, you know people who might be hurt by certain topics because the very mention of certain topics can fill them with sadness or shame, and they may feel condemned. And that's not the intention of the text or of the exposition of it, but that's sometimes the reality. And you see, if a minister is so affected by those things that he accommodates his message accordingly, after a while he's going to be very, very nice He's going to be very, very general. And he might be very, very cramped and restricted in his own delivery for fear of such things. And he may also become very, very dull and fail to speak the word of God with plainness and clarity and boldness, trusting in God to help people sort through it sometimes in a way that he's unable to. And then there's a temptation from personal sins and failures that can make ministers feel that they're unworthy because of their own failure to live up to what they preach. And the importance, again, is for ministers to be real in their own hearts, to be honest in their own spirit, and to continually preach the gospel to themselves, knowing that they need it just as much as everyone sitting in the pew. And as sinners, the ministers have a common life with people who struggle with sin and fail. But that failure ought not to deter them from speaking the truth of the gospel with confidence. Because you might say in modern terminology, it's not all about him. And the effectiveness doesn't depend upon him ultimately. It depends upon the word of God, applied by his spirit. But again, communicated in earthen vessels, 
in those who are frail and those who uh, are partly sanctified, those in their weak humanity. But the power is of God. But it's not within anyone's ability to either produce or to maintain this boldness so that they can consistently speak this glorious message as they ought to speak. And that leads finally to the serious responsibility of God's people for this. Remember, we're looking at a prayer request. The great apostle Paul is asking these slaves there in Ephesus, among others, to pray for him so that he might be able to speak as he ought to speak with God-given boldness. Ministers need their people's prayers. Your minister needs your prayers. Preaching is not simply a matter of pouring out uh, theological knowledge. It's not simply a matter of giving a prepared speech. You know, brothers and sisters, that I really don't know what's going to happen on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings. I don't have a complete manuscript. And uh, I, I've, I've deliberately weaned myself away from having too many words on paper because I don't want to be stuck with certain prescribed words. I, I want to be able to communicate the thoughts and ideas of the text and hopefully in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, to help me to do that. Sometimes I feel that help more than others. But it's important to realize that the minister is not simply delivering a prepared uh, speech. True preaching comes from God. And it's your privilege. It is your privilege as well as your responsibility to go to God and ask Him for it. Someone asked C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, the great preacher. I love to read his sermons, and sometimes I, I, I ask myself, why do you do this? Because it can be discouraging. Because I read his sermons like, man, I can never, I can never come close to being able to preach like that. But he directs me to Christ in a way that uh, makes me want to share the riches of that gospel message. But he was asked the secret of his success, and his simple answer was this, my people pray for me. Isn't that remarkable? They say something like, Lord, give our pastor boldness that he might proclaim the gospel of Christ as he ought. I hear that in the consistory room before the service. It always encourages me. Because this boldness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And there is a certain sovereignty also to the work of the Holy Spirit. There's not a sameness to his work. You know, you can read the accounts of those whom God used in times of spiritual awakening and and, and revival in the history of the church. And often men who were very, very mediocre preachers were given a kind of ability and faith, a kind of freedom. That was, the, that was the term that they often spoke of. The Lord gave me freedom, the ability to speak with a full heart, with a clear mental sense of the riches and the glory of the message and its authority, its goodness. And then it's effect. But there's a sovereignty of the work of the Spirit in terms of when and how much that word really takes effect and impacts people. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you ought to never miss a worship service if you can be there because you never know what might happen. You never know how God might come down in the preaching of the gospel and so move and so help people that they know in a special way God was in this place and we were dealing with the Lord in a wonderful way. When you pray for your preacher, you're praying for yourself. You're praying for this congregation. You're not praying for him. And we need to be sure that God is willing and, and ready to hear those prayers and to, 
to bless the primary means of grace, the main way in which God saves and sanctifies people, it's through the preaching of the gospel. All prayer, all prayer, right? We're to pray with all prayer. And this morning we're reminded that all prayer includes praying for preachers. Amen.